the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Tuesday debate night edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be taking your calls, 1-888-291-2222, 888-291-2222, just as soon as the debate ends. Get your reactions to uh, what you saw and who you think outperformed the other and what the electoral implications will be. We'll tackle all that in just a little bit as soon as the debate ends. But in the meantime, there is uh, substantive news that was made by President Trump in advance of tonight's debate. And that was yesterday when he announced a expansion of rapid testing for COVID-19 in partnership with uh, the contracted party, Abbott Labs. Here's President Trump's announcement. Today, I'm pleased to report that we're announcing our plan to distribute 150 million Abbott rapid point of care tests in the coming weeks, very, very soon. This will be more than double the number of tests already performed. And here is our plan. 50 million tests will go to protect the most vulnerable communities, which we've always promised to do, including 18 million for nursing homes, 15 million for assisted living facilities, 10 million for home health and hospice uh, care hospice care agencies, and nearly one million for historically black colleges and universities and also tribal nation colleges. One hundred million rapid point of care tests will be given to states and territories to support efforts to reopen their economies and schools immediately and fast as they can. Uh, And that was the kicker at the end, uh, the rapid testing as uh, the means to facilitate uh, reopening of schools, of the economy generally. Admiral Sarah, uh, who's run logistics on these matters for the administration, he actually did, if you missed it, uh, a nice little demonstration of just how easy this test is and um, non-invasive for the most part. I mean, as non-invasive as you can be when you need to do a nasal swab. But you, you open up this little cardboard piece of cardboard that has uh, antibodies and other you know, technical medical goop on it. That's my medical knowledge. And uh, you swab your nose uh, each nostril a couple times. You put the the swab in the cardboard, fold it over, wait 15 minutes, and you find out if uh, you tested positive or not. So it is pretty simple. And uh, this is being drop shipped to states for governors to decide how they want to use it. But here's the recommendation again from the administration, Admiral Garah. Allocation to states and territories is based strictly on their relative population. Governors have the flexibility to use these tests as they deem fit, but we strongly encourage governors to utilize them in settings that are uniquely in need of rapid, low-tech point-of-care tests, like opening and keeping open our K-12 schools, supporting critical infrastructure and first responders, responding to outbreaks specifically in certain demographics or locations, and screening of surveillance in congregate settings. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Jonathan Allen. He's a pediatrician, epidemiologist, public health academician, and the former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. Dr. Allen, thanks for joining us again. 
wonderful to be here. Uh, so this is something, uh, this rapid, reliable testing was something you've been calling for for some time, and um, the day has finally come, at least in significant measure. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not unique in this perspective. I mean, I think the perfect test is something that is cost is very cheap. It's it's highly um, accurate. In this case, the Abbott test is testing out um, pretty high on the sensitivity, which is the ability to detect someone who actually has the infection. And it's about 95%, which is better than the other tests. And it's very low tech, just like you said. And I think we've been waiting for it. Abbott was approved by the FDA, um, I think, under emergency use back in late August. But getting it out to the people who could use it has been sort of the next big step. And as, as your um, clips sort of represented is that, and what I was writing about, again, is the idea that the more you can use it to catch people early, if they've been exposed or screening a group of people who are in a bubble, if you will, or in this case, schools, you, it almost acts like a vaccine in that you are able to find people who are infected, take them out of circulation and protect everyone else. So it's a form of, it's a backwards form of a permanent form of herd immunity. And uh, what about uh, the, uh, the impetus for this testing is for the purposes ultimately of getting people to a position where they feel safe and they are generally speaking safe within a reasonable degree of risk to send the kids back to school, to go back and teach in school, to open up businesses and the economy. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the you know, I, I'm, I'm biased in favor of the fact that cases by themselves don't make me, um, are not what I'm so anxious about. It is the spread of those cases to vulnerable populations who have a very high likelihood of dying. And if you can, continually sort of reduce that risk of transmission outside that, then then a lot of these venues, these congregation settings become less risky to the general population. And if you're talking about people either making a personal choice to say, uh, you know, or young kids going to, you know, K through 12 or even college students who um, by themselves are, you know, despite whatever we hear in the media, relatively low risk for getting very sick and dying, um, you really all of a sudden have a whole, a whole, uh, a tool bag or a toolkit that allows you to strategize a way to reopen and normal, start to normalize things. Because as I also have written, and everyone else says as well, is we've got to figure out how to live with this virus for a while. We, it's not going to be perfect, but we can't live in. You, know, you and I have only talked about this for six months now. Right. We can't live in the shutdown state. So now, what are the compromises you're going to make, and where are they realistic? And this test. And having it distributed so widely will give us some tools to be able to strategically start to live with the virus in a way where we reduce hospitalizations and death while allowing there to be periodic flips as we go along. You uh, invoke the phrase herd immunity, and that would earn you a tongue lashing from Tony Fauci. Can, can, what, what's your perspective on Fauci's reaction to the prospect that cross immunity may have uh, maybe a play here in a significant way such that the antibody testing doesn't capture everybody who's developed some sort of immunity to the virus. And there's been a, a recent studies are not peer reviewed, but, the, but they're points of conversation, at least and con- contemplation from out of Tokyo, as well as out of Scripps Research Institute in La Jolla just the other day that suggests that, you know, cross immunity is a, a real dynamic at play here that needs to be better understood. Well, I don't. I, I appreciate the concept of cross-immunity. I'm not an immunologist, so I'm, I'm going to defer. But I will sort of get back to a point. Again, I'm going to keep quoting the conversations we've had. The ground will tell us. You know, you watch when 
We watch the blitz as they come. And you know they're going to come just like they always do. You know, areas are going to get better. They're going to open up. We're going to see blitz, whether it's college students or it's people going to restaurants. The question is, is it as high as it was before? And if not, you start you either think, well, something is going on biologically or there's, there's just fewer, you know, therefore fewer susceptibles because there's this cross-reactivity and other people were infected we didn't know. Or, the, or there just isn't as much of a force of infectivity for it to spread. But I think we're going to see it on the ground. I mean, it, a lot of this debate is, is all conjecture. Yes. Um, yeah. and, 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 and I think that what, what we're both saying, and we have said, is we've got to balance this. And I think when we get into the struggle, you and I, with the Fauci issue, is it ends up coming out with only one definitive answer without the balance. Well, and the, the other thing, too, is sort of the um, we, we never get to, like, threshold uh, answers to questions or to issues. Right. It's, uh, you know, always, uh, yeah. So is that positive? Are we close? Well, I, you know, it's always it's always a well out of an abundance of caution. Let's just continue doing what we're doing. And yeah. and, and so, for example, USA Today uh, did this analysis of the state's positive case count among kids age five through 17 uh, since Florida schools have reopened. The analysis shows states positive case count among kids five to 17 declined through late September after a peak in July. Among the, among the counties seeing surges in overall cases, it's college age adults, not school children driving the analysis or driving the trend, I should say. And now you've got uh, half the parents who half the parents who didn't want to go back, send their kids back to school. Now they're banging on the doors to see if they can get their kids back into school because the dire predictions haven't borne out. But now then, of course, there's always the hedge to say, but it's still there's still possibility something bad could happen. And so do you wait for something bad to happen or do you go with, you know, what seems to be the reality on the ground? Yeah, I mean, I think that you, you again, I feel like we've been having this discussion for a while, which is this idea of a threshold and how and how do you think about making decisions and strategic decisions and policy decisions, knowing there's going to be cases, you're not going to get to zero. So what's the threshold? And um, I think the threshold has to represent what you think is about the transmission dynamics and um, I think we've, I've always been worried, and, and we had this discussion back this summer, and I've always been worried about the elder, the elder teachers, right? That's always been my worry. Yeah. Or the children coming home and infecting a, an elderly uh, grandparent living in the home. Those have always been our issues. So now you get the testing that we've been talking about, and that becomes a non-issue. And so, you, you know, you're actually looking for hospitalizations and death. And I hate to use people words about death, but you're looking for that in the elderly. And so we're not seeing it. You know, we're just not seeing that kind of and and if anything, I would be doing a lot of work on trying to understand that dynamic very quickly. That would be like my proof of concept that everything's cool. And if that's not showing up, then I think you, you stop looking for um, the actual, you know, the threshold, as you were saying, that, that you would act on. I, I, I agree with you. At some point, you got it. You got to take the leap. Yeah, well, at least that what you just said provides a roadmap that people can understand. That's why we have him on the show, Dr. Jonathan Ellen, pediatrician, epidemiologist, public health academician, and former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. Dr. Ellen, thanks as always for being with us. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. Don't forget, uh, next hour, right after the debate ends, we'll be taking your phone calls for the rest of the show. 1-888-291-2222. That's 888-291-2222. Get your reflections and reactions to what has transpired. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to tackle this tax issue uh, that uh, the Democrats are trying to make hay with. 
per this New York Times bombshell, you know, bombshell in uh, D.C. press corps speaks means nothing burger normally. Uh, and I'm mainly going to do this because of this just most excellent blog post from an accounting professional named Larry Correa, who writes at the monsterhunternation.com. And I, before we get to that, remind people that it was just a, a month ago, way back in August, <laughs> where uh, after Biden uh, reacted to Trump's proposal to suspend the payroll tax by saying that he was going to jeopardize Social Security, that uh, Wall Street Journal reporters noted that, uh, well, the Bidens dodged the payroll tax by using an S-Corp to avoid, to avoid paying more than half a million dollars in levies for Medicare and Obamacare. Um, and uh, they go through, you know, for all their speaker fees and so on and so forth and how they dodge payroll taxes. They didn't dodge them. They didn't do anything illegal. They just set themselves up for the income they anticipated to have the least amount of tax exposure as possible. What a concept. You mean like what everybody does? Certainly everybody that uh, can get uh, some professional assistance and planning on the matter, right? Uh, and um, Larry Correa writes about the New York Times stories. Uh, oh, good. I just heard Trump's taxes leaked or something. As a former professional accountant, I can't wait to listen to a bunch of morons will explain to me how taxes work for the next week. Well, right on cue, Larry. Here's Kamala Harris, not only woke explaining, but uh, conspiracy theorizing in the form of questions, uh, more Russian collusion quality uh, cloak and dagger afoot. Who does he owe the money to? Tell us. Who do you owe the money to? And um, do you owe debt to any foreign nation? Do you owe, who, you know, do you owe debt? Do you owe money? Let's just be clear about what debt means. You owe somebody money. Do you owe anybody money who is impacted by any decision you make as president of the United States? We need to know that. I barely owed the IRS about 750 bucks uh, when he was elected in, for the 2016 tax year and the 2017 tax year, according to New York Times. Now, again, a reminder that um, whoever leaked that information, New York Times, if it turns out to be accurate, they actually have evidence to support it because we are talking about the New York Times. That is a felony. It's not a felony for the New York Times to print it, but it is a felony for perhaps someone at the IRS to leak the information. Regardless, back to Larry Correa. You Dunning Krugerans are annoying. That is just such a great reference. I have to stop. I'm almost uh, focusing on his response to all this because of the Dunning Kruger reference, uh, which is a uh, psychological study by two psychologists, Dunning and Kruger, that uh, uh, identified a condition whereby somebody of limited skills, cognitive skills, believes they have much greater skills than they actually possess. You Dunning Krugerans. He's talking about people that suddenly become constitutional scholars when Amy Coney Barrett is nominated uh, or experts on the use of force laws when there is a police involved shooting or uh, epidemiologists with their degrees from the University of Internet, as as he writes uh, in the era of covid. Okay, he goes on to say, as a former accountant, please allow me to explain why all of today's newly formed tax experts are effing morons. It's very colorful language he uses. I, I don't know that it's inappropriate in this circumstance. And we should metaphorically put a brick in a sock and beat them over the head with it until they shut up. He did say metaphorically. I'm going to keep this blog post simple. I'm not going to get into any of the specifics of the leaked Trump taxes. Why? Because we don't know how full of blank the New York Times is. And you don't do taxes based on rumors and innuendo. You do taxes based upon financial statements and the company's books. And he goes on to say this stuff is super complicated. 
and his happy rear end is retired and likes getting paid more money to write books instead of reading through thousands of pages of IRS regs. But here's the bottom line. Is it plausible that a billionaire paid no taxes for a period of several years? Yep, totally. See, all that stuff uh, uh, that he mentions in his piece about the complicated tax code and how it's an accountant's sacred duty to take advantage of all the stupid laws Congress has passed to save their clients' money, that's how a billionaire can pay virtually no taxes. It's happened many times before, and it will happen many times again. He goes on to say, the only th- the one thing that's really unfair about our tax system is that it's rigged in, figure, in favor of people who have more resources. But it's government meddling, uh, making it more costly to conduct, uh, government meddling makes it more costly to do business, but they make the regulatory burden that much more complicated and thus providing opportunities for the wealthy to game the system to actually minimize their burden with uh, relative to the less wealthy. I mean, this is not exactly a newsflash. So if you want to uh, question Trump paying uh, less than you think he should, despite not knowing nothing about his finances, uh, virtually all of us, uh, myself included, um, he paid his fair share from 2005 to 2070 when he paid 70 million in taxes, but he didn't pay his fair share in 2016 and 2017 when he allegedly paid 750 bucks in taxes based on what? Just what you think is fair, just numbers out of the air. No, if you want to uh, have a, a complaint, a substantive one, then go in the direction Larry Correa is going here, which is to say. I can uh, I, ha- you know, Trump, a billionaire, has the resources to put together a team of experts to take advantage of every law loophole. It's not a loophole. It's a law. Laws that Congress passed that treat some things different than others and provide benefits to some versus others. It's a version of picking, winning and losing. So it's the same thing with tax credits for your Tesla. Why are middle income families underwriting the purchase of $90,000 sedans for Tesla drivers? That doesn't make any sense to me, but it's part of the tax law. Get a rebate. Subsidize subsidy. That That's the point here. And uh, Larry Correa says it more entertainingly than I did. Trump has those resources. I bet he's got a room full of accountants and their leaders, probably a grizzled old CPA with an eye patch and a raven who sits on his shoulder. The raven also has an eye patch and an accounting degree. This man has wrestled bears. and He's going to take advantage of every tax break in the U.S. code for his client and do so gleefully, knowing that many of those laws were signed by Barack Obama and Bill Clinton. Mm hmm. On the other side, you know damn good that and doing damn good and well that the IRS has sent their most fearsome auditor against him. This man sold his soul to the devil and then fined the devil for failing to list the soul as a depreciable asset. <laughs> when he shows up to audit your company, he appears as a flash of fire and brimstone as a finished death metal band plays his theme song. He is the auditor bereft of mercy, compassion, and pity, and beneath his leathery wings serve a legion of IRS goblins who will crawl into every nook and cranny of the Trump Corporation's PL looking for errors. And if the mouse so much as defecates a turd large enough to unbalance that ledger that will be hell to pay. That's the actual dynamic in a situation where you're in uh, protracted negotiations and argumentations with the IRS. So all of this Kamala Harris, you know, Russian collusion remix and the hand wringing and histrionics from the New York Times and all those who take their marching orders from the New York Times, please, please, uh, Larry Correa, you know, as uh, here we go again, street level. Larry Correa has it uh, sussed out pretty well, I think. And the the emphasis too, not just on how it actually works in this space, is all the people uh, self-righteously commenting on this topic area who know nothing, know nothing. We don't even have any source material from which we can have a discussion. We just have the New York Times characterization of it. That's, That's not enough. 
at least you know with with the uh, impeachment, we had uh, a transcript of the phone call that we could hash over and discuss. This is just you know an op-ed about something that the the uh, I mean it's an op-ed masquerading as a news story by reporters who probably don't understand the first thing about the tax code. You know, probably have somebody help them file via TurboTax. All right, remember, coming up, uh, bottom of the next hour, as soon as the debate ends, 1-888-291-2222, 888-291-2222. We'll take your calls. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Holy agent is uh, Lanny Davis, <laughs> special counsel of Bill Clinton. He's always fun, if not persnickety. And it's just it's counselor to the president. He offers advice like this. He's got an op-ed in the Hill. My advice on to Joe Biden on the debate, be Joe Biden. Be Joe Biden. That's exactly. That's exactly, this is who Joe Biden is, according to Lanny Davis, a person who cares about others, who knows the hurt of tragedy, feels other people's pain, other people's pain, as you have felt your own horrific pain, and knows the power of hope and empathy and healing from your life experience. You sound like you should, you should be reading crystals on stage, the way that Lanny Davis describes him. Uh, yeah, be, Joe Biden just needs to be Joe Biden. Mm, mm, yeah, I don't know. I think it's going to be difficult. I think those that are provide, uh, suggesting that uh, Joe Biden avoid engagement with Trump uh, take the Nancy Pelosi approach. He's not even worth your time. He's an illegitimate president. So pretend he's not there and just answer Chris Wallace's questions. I don't think Joe Biden will be able to exercise that discipline. I certainly don't think that Trump will let him get away with that for 90 minutes. So what can... We expect from this interplay and how will it play in those key swing states in the Rust Belt? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Selena Zito, Washington Examiner reporter, New York Post columnist, CNN contributor and author of The Great Revolt Inside the Populist Coalition, Reshaping American Politics. Selena, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Much for having me. Um, interesting piece in uh the New York Times, this isn't, I don't know, necessarily in your wheelhouse, but it but I think it's relevant. Uh, Brett Stevens writing about a secret Trump voter. Her name is Chris. She's a registered Dem in the, her mid 50s who lives in Manhattan, who is gay. And she tells Brett Stevens, being a lesbian who's voting for Trump is like coming out of the closet again. But uh, she goes through the stuff that uh, impacts her and where Trump stands and why she's voting for him quietly uh, without uh, divulging her last name. And then she says this about the Biden-Harris ticket. Fifteen years ago, maybe I would have voted for Joe Biden, but he's weak. And what did he do with his 40-odd years in Washington? As for Kamala Harris, uh, Chris dismisses her outright, writes Stevens, quote, she doesn't know what she believes. She won't be the adult in the room. Um, You know, I don't know how much a... um, uh, a mid fifties uh, Manhattan liberal has in common with many Rust Belt voters that you often speak with, but there is something to that. She's not so ideological on the topic. She's looking at what her interests are and how they've been served by the choices before her, and she comes down on the side of Trump. Well, so here's the thing that people don't understand: 
uh, in particular in my profession. They believe that people's votes are about just them, just the person that's making the vote. But most of the time, a vote isn't just about your personal finances. It's also about your community, and it's about your, um, um, your family, and it's about where you're rooted to. So all those things play into a vote. It's not just a selfish decision. Or, and so that's, that's the nuance that a lot of people miss. The other thing is, is Chris has a lot of things in common with Russ Powell voters, not because she is not voting on her sexual preference. She is voting on, you know, how it impacts her life and how it impacts the, her community. And she believes that it is, a vote for Trump is more positive to those aspects of her life. I mean, we call them shy Trump voters, whatever you want, whatever label you want to put on them. This is a common occurrence for me every day. And no, they do not want to give their name for a variety of reasons. First of all, peer pressure. Uh, second of all, social acceptance. You're not going to be invited to the cocktail party or the barbecue if you have Trump sign in your yard. And, uh, and, and so, you know, the shy Trump voters are actually a thing. If people read the book, The Great Revolt, the one I wrote with Brad Todd, uh, there's a poll in the back of it. And we asked self-identified Trump voters if they told a family member, friend, or a pollster if they were going to vote for him. 34% said they would not. And that was 2016, and 2016 seems like a Disney movie compared to what we're experiencing right now, in particular with the cancel culture. She is Selena Zito, Washington Examiner reporter, New York Post columnist, CNN contributor to the book, The Great Revolt, Inside the Populist Coalition, Reshaping American Politics. It's a shame the way you mess around with the mess. It's a shame. This is the Dan Proft Show. When you talk to um, voters in those uh, swing uh, Midwestern states, do you get the sense that uh, the worm is starting to turn on lockdown policies? Because uh, obviously you've got to. a wide variety of governors and political cultures in those states. You've got Dems in Minnesota and Michigan and, and Wisconsin, Illinois, Republicans in Missouri and Iowa and Indiana, Ohio. And um, uh, and and you, I just get the sense, particularly when it comes to K through 12 education, that those uh, areas where they're continuing to slow walk a return to in-class learning that it, they're starting to be a, a revolt. There, there's enough evidence coming in from enough states and it's start, starting to circulate that people are finally starting to question, even if they still have some trepidation, finally starting to question some of the decisions local school officials, mayors, as well as uh, governors are, are uh, some of the decisions they're making if they're continuing with sort of this um, lockdown whack-a-mole policy. 
Yeah, so I see that on two fronts, not just on the schools. Uh, you see a lot of signs in people's yards that says they won't have a political sign in their yard, but they will have a sign that says open our schools. Now, that's telling you something. Culture always gives us sort of evidence that, um, that something is happening. But we just never, we often don't pick up on that evidence. That to me is someone that either is going to vote for Donald Trump or is just not going to vote at all because they don't care for him, but they're fed up with the Democrats. Um, and I think that, so we have, we have that cultural shift away from uh, the Democrat mayors and governors who have put these strike rules down uh, that, that are all over the place in terms of making sense uh, as to how it protects people. Uh, we also have another thing going on uh, that is impacting Democrat governors and mayors, and that is the constant protests and, and at times of riots. Uh, they've become out of control in a lot of our cities, and, and maybe not all of them become to the level of a riot, but they are disrupting uh, daily downtown living, downtown shopping, um, downtown eating and dining, and, and people are, are fed up with the lax rules pertaining to those people that are, are constantly part of a protest or uh, jump into a riot. Uh, but, um, you know, and they, they think they look at it and say to a mayor or, you know, um, a, a county commissioner or, whatever, or the governor, whatever it is, I'm, going, I'm playing by the rules. I'm following all the rules that you tell me. The people that are participating in these are not, and yet I'm being punished because I'm unable to enjoy a dinner in downtown or be able to go out downtown because roads are blocked, because there's always protesters. And so there, there is a growing frustration with these, these sort of two sets of roles. And I think that to, to me as a, an observer and a reporter, uh, once these, once these um, protest hits places like Kenosha. Kenosha is like the everyman of American cities, right? It looks like no matter where you live, it looks like the suburbs of where you're from. And, and seeing it there and seeing the destruction had a much larger impact on voters' psyche than seeing it in Portland because everyone, sadly, has a level of expectation that goofy things are going to happen in Portland. But they're not going to happen in Kenosha, and they're not going to happen in um, in Lancaster, and you're not going to happen in the way that they even had here in my hometown of Pittsburgh, uh, when when the McDonald's was torn apart, and 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 diners in in the city were harassed, essentially for being white. I wanted to ask you um, a uh, journalistic ethics question. I don't know that anybody's well, actually, that's not true. So actually, somebody at NPR went there to their credit. But um, in the wake of Ruth, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, you know, longtime SCOTUS reporter uh, Nita Totenberg put together this piece remembering not just a person she covered, but a friend. And the friend that the piece that she put together revealed that she had a very close personal relationship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg in a, in a way that wasn't previously disclosed. I mean, personal friendship, like providing care for Ruth, Ruth Bader Ginsburg in, in a material way. 
Um, and and even uh, there was an NPR reporter, I think, or a, a columnist, I think, or Kelly McBride, who said that that should have been disclosed earlier. NPR saying that about Nina Totenberg, to again, to their credit. I mean, um, you know, those types of things. Uh, once upon a time, I know this is not new. This stuff wouldn't be disclosed when it was sports writers and athletes or politicians and journalists. But, um, you know, that, that really is a failure of journalistic ethics, isn't it? I mean, shouldn't people know if you are essentially in the tank for a particular person or, or, or a particular institution because of obviously financial arrangements, we say for sure? Well, personal uh, relationships can be even stronger motivation than financial. Yeah, absolutely. So you, if there was a if if I engaged in a personal relationship with someone I was covering, I would have to tell my editor. This is these are my own rules. I would have to tell my editor, uh, as a reporter, uh, I would have to tell my editor disclose that and ask to be taken off of that beat and or covering that race because um, there's you know there's a personal relationship. I take it even further, and this is just my brain, but I don't vote in presidential elections I cover um, because I traditionally, at least for the past 30 years, have interviewed everyone on both sides. I always felt as though it's a conflict of interest to go into one of those interviews and say, you know, with the idea that I know that I'm going to vote for the other person. So I take myself out of that equation and and don't vote in presidential elections. Now, this year, um, I have not been, first time ever in my career, I am not interviewing um, the Democratic nominee or the vice presidential nominee. Um, So I guess in theory, I don't have to worry about it this year. No, no basement pass this year? Yeah. Yeah, uh, Yeah. yeah, it's really it's, It's very weird for me. She is Selena Zito, Washington Examiner reporter, New York Post columnist, CNN contributor to the book, The Great Revolt Inside the Populist Coalition, Reshaping American Politics. Selena, thanks as always for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. And don't forget, the bottom of next hour, as soon as the debate ends, taking your calls, get your reactions to uh, debate number one between Trump and Biden. 1-888-291-2222. That's 888-291-2222. What would we do without uh, citizen journalists in the digital age? We talked about one effectively started out that way. James O'Keefe and Project Veritas and the uh, apparent ballot harvesting criminality that is being committed by uh, Ilhan Omar operatives in Minneapolis. The Minneapolis Police Department uh, tweeting yesterday that uh, they are aware of the allegations, the video circulating, video evidence circulating, and they are going to look into it effectively would not be more specific than that, but at least they're attaching seriousness to it by tweeting out about it. In addition to that rebel pundit, less well-known, but uh, he does some good video work out of Chicago. Uh, He went and talked to some Chicagoans, black Americans living in Chicago, who are activists in their own right in neighborhoods that they actually live in, and uh, got perspective from 
for example, a gentleman named Mark Carter, for example, a lady named Vetris Boyce on the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, at the street level, at the ground level, at the grassroots level, the neighborhood level, what do they believe slash understand about Black Lives Matter? Uh, you may be surprised, Mark Carter. Their agenda is to use these young people to undermine the real black agenda to turn things around in the black community. This so-called Black Lives Matter movement, they're not in these communities. It's all a hoax. And what they do is attach that hashtag to anything that's going on. But it's not real. These are nothing but communist groups. And so people like George Soros funds these fictitious groups to then come out and keep up this confusion and, 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 and the issues are never resolved. They never resolved because they were, it was never meant to be resolved. Um, George Soros, oh, how dare he invoke George Soros' name? I thought that's off limits. Uh, number one, uh, fictitious, love that word. Number two, gets it. The key phrase, they're not, uh, they're not going to be solved. The problems are not going to be solved because they were never meant to be solved. There's no, the, the purpose is not solutions. These are not solutionists. They're ideologues making a power grab. It's only to dismantle the government if they can. This is what you, this is what Black Lives Matter is all about. The same democratic liberal machine working its way through this LGBT community has been the same liberal machine that has starved our communities, that, that, that has uh, worked along with some of our own elected officials and even some of our own leadership in our communities to lock us up and lock us out of opportunities. And any issue that they can, they can attach themselves to, they attach themselves to that issue. Was well, a police shooting, mass incarceration, a reparation, all these things, they attach themselves. And after they've done their pimping, then they get back on the plane and go back where they're from. After they've done their pimping, they get back on the plane, go back home. Exactly. He knows a hustle when he sees one. And so do many who you don't hear from in these majority black neighborhoods that are supposedly being represented by Black Lives Matter. Of course, they're not. They see. They see who stays and who goes. They see the agendas. They're not stupid. Vetris Boyce is the same way. You have huge, humongous, not-for-profit organizations that come in our communities as if they're here to save our souls, but what they're really doing is building their wealth off of the back support people. Bottom line in five seconds or less? It's not an authentic black movement. This is Dan Duff. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Mentioned a study last week uh, out of Tokyo regarding the possible the possibility of cross immunity and that uh, a much greater percentage of the population than is identified through antibody testing may have developed immunity to COVID-19 through having other illnesses. There was an additional study out of uh, Scripps Research Center in La Jolla, California, that suggests the same. And yet this continues to be uh, dismissed by uh, the deified epidemiologists and infectious disease experts like Tony Fauci. Don't understand it. John Tierney is a contributing editor to the City Journal, former reporter and columnist at the New York Times. <laughs> I don't think he'd be welcome in the New York Times anymore. Co-author of the new book, The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. John Tierney, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. 
Thanks for inviting me, Dan. Uh, And I assume, you know, you're about as welcome at The New York Times as another former columnist named Joel Kotkin is these days. But um, that uh, that notwithstanding, uh, the the moral case for reopening schools without masks, I sort of uh, provided uh, Professor Gupta's summation. But uh, give us the evidentiary basis on which he makes that conclusion. Well, um, the whole model for the lockdowns and everything was based on the idea that the virus had just arrived and that it was really lethal and then that it was going to lead to, you know, two million deaths. And in the U.S., there was one estimate, you know, that the scientists in The New York Times published a thing that 10 million Americans would die because, you know, every, you know, everybody was uh, 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 was liable to be infected and it had a really high fatality rate. But that's not what happened. You know, those models were wrong. And from the very start, Professor Gupta was saying, look, these models could be wrong because actually this virus is, has actually been here longer. It's It's been spreading a lot more and a lot of it kills some people. But a lot of people basically um, are resistant to it. And it's looking more and more as if that is the case. And Sweden is a great case. You mentioned the fact that, you know, you know Dr. Fauci pointed to them, you know, so again in his exchange with Rand Paul. Well, you know. Throughout the spring and summer was always Sweden is the cautionary tale. You've got to have lockdowns or look what happened in Sweden because they did have a very high rate at first. Um, and, you know, partly because they didn't do a great job with their nursing homes, you know, although certainly not as bad a job as New York did. Um, but uh, what actually happened was that uh, as the summer went on, then, you know, Sweden had this high um, hit and then it, it went down way uh, uh, below um, – and the rate has been down close to zero now, you know, since the end of July, the rate of death. And and now the United States has um, has surpassed Sweden um, in the number of deaths per capita. So suddenly, and that's what Rand Paul was saying to Fauci, well, what, you know, why is that? And then Fauci um, was saying, well, look at the Nordic countries. But in fact, uh, the reason uh, uh, the other Nordic countries had pretty light lockdowns. They were fairly light and they were also fairly short. They're nothing at all like, you know, like the stuff we have here in New York. And Sweden did do worse than them. But there were other reasons for that. It was, you know, that Sweden had more immigrants. And one of the main things was that Sweden had a lot of people um, uh, in nursing homes who were exceptionally vulnerable. And, and this is the theory that I'm kind of exploring now. Dan Klein, an economist, looked at it. Is, is called the dry tinder theory, and, and that if you look at countries in Europe that were hard hit, you know we uh, we like to try and pretend that these are are due to their policies, but in fact what happened was this, in some countries there were very mild flu seasons the last couple of years, and so you had more elderly people survive them, and they're more vulnerable to the virus this year, and that was seems to have been the main difference between Sweden and its neighbors. And, and, and they had. I'm sorry to interrupt, but, but just to, for point of emphasis, too, because this is important because it, this dismissal that Fauci gave that a lot of people do. Norway and Finland, ha, schools reopened in May, bars and restaurants reopened in early June. So just to put a, a specifics to your point about that, you know, they even Norway and Finland had light touches. They were not following, you know, the CDC, Tony Fauci, uh, Bob Redfield and, and lockdown governors and mayors in this country protocol when it comes to schooling and when it comes to restaurants and bars and the like. Right. So Fauci is telling Rand Paul, oh, look, Norway and Sweden, you know, Norway did better, but, but Norway's not following his advice. You know, they did better by not following his advice. And, you know, what happened over there was Sweden, before any of the lockdowns, Sweden was much harder hit than them, simply because of those factors I mentioned. It had a lot more vulnerable people to it than there. And, uh, you know, other countries like Germany were, um, 
I mean, Hungary, for instance, you know, interesting study that, you know, Hungary was, you know, very few deaths there. And it's not that they had genius public, you know, health policy there. They had a very heavy, you know, mortality in previous years due to flu. So that there weren't that many people there to be exposed. So, but, but when you look at all this data, I mean, you talk about, you know, people get accused of, oh, this is human experimentation, you know, to, to, to end the lockdowns. I look at it the other way. In fact, I'm doing another piece for City Journal now on that. I mean, these lockdowns are human experimentation. Yep. I mean, you know, this is, is an unprecedented experiment on the public. And, you know, and, and by all indications, the, the number of, of lives lost, the number of lives ruined, the suffering is far greater than the benefits. Um, I mean, here, here's the thing. The reporting on this is so irresponsible. I know that's axiomatic. But even this this uh, blaring headlines yesterday into today, passing the one million person uh, dead mark uh, globally. Yes, that's terrible. I mean, nobody nobody thinks anything different than that's terrible. That's unfortunate. It's also unfortunate that one hundred fifty thousand people die a day in this world. It's also unfortunate that two hundred fifty one thousand uh, adults die in the United States every year from preventable medical error. I mean, there's a lot of things that are terrible. Um, the, the why we react to this in such a way that is stark, that is so starkly different from how we react to everything else, is the real question. That those who favor these policies that are so much performance art don't want to answer. Right. It's just become a fixation. You know, the, the deaths with the media, all the media cares about is the number of deaths. And, and even though that has come way down, now they just focus on the number of cases, even though even though a few people are dying. It's just become this scorecard that the media takes and, and politicians in their usual way. They just don't want anything bad to happen right now before the next election. So they're just trying to keep those numbers down while. You know, destroying you know, you know, while destroying so many lives and businesses, while ruining things, while setting up so many more deaths in the future. Yeah, but I, 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 I got to say too, I think I think there needs to be some sort of inventory here, and people need to start really pressing other people on this question. We we don't treat. I mean, look, I'm death is is part of life, and I'm sorry that people die, but it happens, and so you know, whatever, get get used to it. Uh, I don't know what yeah. to tell you, but the idea that we treat an 85 year old who's lived a life and had, uh, you know, had a great life and He's at the end of his life and he gets COVID and he dies. I'm, I'm sorry that happened, that, that we treat that the same way. Well, we treat that as a more serious occurrence, actually, than we treat a 13 year old who commits suicide. That, that's a that's a cultural sickness that is uh, with us now where we don't make any rational calculations about days of life loss, about quality of life, even though we know as a matter of course, we know this, but we're pretending we don't know this. We treat a 10 year old murdered on the streets of Chicago as a much more significant tragedy than a 45 year old in the same circumstance. Why? Because it is a more significant tragedy, because the potential that was lost with that 10 year old is greater, uh, generally speaking, than the potential that was lost with the 45 year old or the 85 year old. But we can't even have that conversation now because that's somehow ghoulish or macabre because I want to pretend that death doesn't exist. Right. You know what's so disappointing, too, is that the public health profession, you know, I mean, I understand why the public has a hard time and they fixate on any one death, you know, and the media does it because, it, you know, it, it attracts people's attention. But people in the business are supposed to be, you know, thinking about this rationally. And, and as you say, they have this measure about the quality of life years lost. And they use that when they, you know, evaluate a new drug or something else. How many you know, years is this? How much good will this do? Well, it's very it's much more important to save the lives of young children than it is this, 
is to extend the life of someone who's 85 by a few months. So they're supposed to be making this kind of calculation. This is the kind of thing Fauci is supposed to be doing as a professional. And, 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 and they, just, they, they, they make that in we, we make that in civil litigation all the time. If somebody's injured or somebody uh, get back to my medical error, somebody is a victim of a medical error. We make that determination all the time in terms of their the, the amount of working life they had left and what they were making. So we, we make those those economic decisions all the time. And, and we pretend like we don't now for this. All right, and then Fauci says things like it's totally unacceptable death to allow herd immunity. I mean, I mean, he's not making any calculation. I mean, he's not looking at all the other deaths that will be, you know, there'll be more life years lost from these lockdowns than there will be from COVID. And 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 yet, the, all he's focused on is COVID because that's you know that's his you know he's taking responsibility for that. It puts him in the spotlight and. And and he doesn't want to get blamed for any extra deaths, but he's supposed to be. Our professionals are supposed to look at the big picture and make a rational assessment what's good for society. And they just really, and, and they, you know, I mean, to me, they, it's an unethical experiment that they're continuing right now with these lockdowns. John Tierney, pick up his book, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. Also check out his column, which I tweeted out, The Moral Case for Reopening Schools Without Masks. John Tierney, contributing editor of the City Journal, former reporter and columnist for The New York Times. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Listen to podcast of the show at danproffshow.com. Welcome back to the show and um, the bottom of the hour when the presidential debate concludes, we're taking your calls again, 1-888-291-2222, 888-291-2222. Certainly going to um, ask our upcoming guest, Rod Dreher, about uh, some of what uh, John Tierney had to say uh, about uh, COVID-19 culture. Uh, also from our conversation earlier in the show with Dr. Jonathan Ellen, formerly at Johns Hopkins Children's Hospital as well. Uh, in uh, the American Mind, AmericanMind.org, Angelo Cotavia, a, uh, a professor emeritus at Boston University, writing about the November 3rd election, the greatest benefit that would come from the left's defeat in the 2020 election is the possibility that it may become possible to convince the ruling class, if not the intersectionals, the intersectionals, the identitarians, that such accommodation is the best deal they can get. In other words, the ruling class has to accommodate the so-called deplorables. But the intersectionals, the identitarians, are violent enemies who must be dealt with as such. Fortunately, there are more spoiled children among them than heroes. Yeah, I think we've seen that with some of the uh, police actions that involve the arrests of some of the professional agitators, as well as those who've committed some serious acts of violence. More spoiled brats than heroes. There's not a lot of martyrs in that crowd. Well, at least they're not angling to be. Interesting uh, perspective from Cotavia always is his piece, Revolution 2020. We'll get back to that. But uh, first, I wanted to turn to one of the great speeches of the 20th century from one of the great authors of the 20th century, talking about Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And uh, this is a perfect setup to our uh, discussion, forthcoming discussion with Rod Dreher, the speech he gave in 1983 on the occasion of accepting the Templeton Prize for Progress in Religion. said the following. More than a half century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great dis disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this happened. That's what they said to him. Adults said to Solzhenitsyn as a child. 
Since then, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by the upheaval. But if I were asked to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this happened. Who um, knows of the ravages of communism, having spent the time in the gulag that he did. Is that uh, what's happening and has happened in America? And can it give way to the same ruin that laid waste to the Soviet Union during most of the 20th century? For more on uh, that question, we're pleased to be joined by Rod Dreher, senior editor at the American Conservative, author of the just-released new book, and Rod Dreher's always must-reading, Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. Uh, Live Not By Lies is, um, is a Solzhenitsynism, isn't it? Uh, Rod, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's great to be here this morning. Um, so tell us where you think we're at, uh, particularly against the the, uh, the 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 backdrop of an Amy Coney Barrett Supreme Court nomination, which I think is going to bring out, and it's already bringing out, will continue to bring out some of the um, uh, the uh, forces of 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 illiberalism uh, that uh, Solzhenitsyn wrote about and experienced. Exactly. I, uh, I call the Amy Coney Barrett nomination an apocalypse. Now, the, the Greek meaning of the word apocalypse is unveiling. I think that this is going to unveil the way a lot of elites, what they really think about religious people in this country, Christians, but not only Christians. And uh, I think this goes back to the, the Solzhenitsyn point about men have forgotten God. We live in a country now in America where the millennials are the first generation that is going to grow up without, where a majority of them have no religious belief or no particular religious affiliation. That is going to have consequences, as the 20th century showed in Russia and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I think people have a difficult time conceiving of the idea that these uh, Antifa thugs or Black Lives Matter Marxists could actually engender some sort of mass revolution in this country. I think they have a hard time uh, uh, rejecting the idea, yes, what happened in the Soviet Union, what happened in Venezuela, what happened in other countries around the world where you had uh, autocratic governments rise. Well, that that could never happen here. I mean, except yeah. except except under Trump, of course. Right. No, that, that is a very good point. And that is why five years ago, when I got a phone call from a doctor, he said, listen, uh, my, I need to tell you what my mother said. He told me his mother uh, is very old, living with him and his wife, in Minnesota, and she had spent six years in a communist prison camp as a young woman for her religious faith. And now she immigrated to the U.S., and uh, now she's telling her son, son, the things I see happening in America now remind me of what I left behind. And uh, the doctor felt like he had to tell somebody. He called me a journalist. I thought that was really alarmist, but then I started asking around whenever I would meet somebody who had grown up either in the Soviet Union or the Soviet bloc, hey, the things you're seeing in America now, does it remind you of the old country? Every single one of them said yes, and they get really angry that Americans don't believe them. And uh, I, I think part of it is our idea of totalitarianism is the gulag, is the KGB, is George Orwell in 1984. That's not going to happen again. What's going to happen is what I call soft totalitarianism, which will be things like the Chinese social credit system. They're going to bring that here to America. And it's going to be the sort of thing where they will track all of us because of the data we generate on our smartphones and our laptops. And they will use that information 
to deny us jobs, to deny us access to universities if we don't go along with the regime's progressive social justice ideology. Now, that's not hard totalitarianism. That's not pain and terror, but it is totalitarianism all the same, and we have got to wake up to it. What's a a Christian dissident to do other than uh, shut down his Facebook page? Yeah. So my book has all kinds of advice from uh, dissidents I actually talked to over in the former communist countries. And the first thing they tell you to do is wake up and understand what's happening, you know, and, and it, that it can happen in America. Solzhenitsyn said that's one of the biggest mistakes people make is to think, oh, it can't happen to a nice country like ours. Secondly, they said that uh, they told me that we Christians have got to prepare to suffer. That's one thing we American Christians cannot do. You know, we, we never had to do it. It's, it's been such an easy uh, road here in the land of the free. But that's changing. And uh, these people who went, some of whom went to prison and were beaten and tortured for their faith, they said, if you Americans don't know how to really sacrifice for your faith, losing jobs, losing freedom, even uh, losing your life, possibly, your faith is not going to make it. It's a hard, hard words. But these are words that these Christians over there said that we have got to take seriously here in America. We're speaking with Rod Dreher, author of Live Not By Lies. And Rod, uh, on the matter of soft totalitarianism, how does COVID-19 and the response from governments, both local and federal, how does that fold into the soft totalitarianism that uh, you're describing as a, a possibility, the, the contact tracing, the uh, whack-a-mole lockdown policies and the like? It's a form of conditioning. Uh, and I don't, you know, I don't want to say that it's always wrong to use this for COVID, but it is well worth keeping in mind that this is the, how the government is conditioning us to uh, to expect surveillance all the time. But here's the thing. This happened before COVID. Uh, a lot of Americans think that totalitarianism is something that the government does and only the government. In fact, we're going to have this hybrid system here involving major corporations, woke capitalism, where these companies, which already gather tons and tons of data from us through our apps and everything, where they will start to use that data to condition us to accept the things they want us to believe. Now, I hear myself say that, and I sound like some tinfoil nut, but when you start digging into what the research that has been done on big tech and big data, and you see what they're planning to do, it's absolutely chilling. And you see why these these former communist uh, dissidents were right. Rod Dreher, senior editor at the American Conservative, author of the just-released Live Not by Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. Rod, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it. It's been great. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, taking your calls, getting your takes on uh, the 90-minute debate between Trump and Biden today. I've said enough. Let's get some more callers in. Dave in Lansing, you're on The Dan Proft Show. Hi. uh, Why doesn't the Trump campaign or the... um, Trump administration look into this uh, fact, this elephant in the room to me, that the uh, postal workers support Democrats. It's still on the APWU website, the American Postal Workers Union website. Uh, there's there's two flyers that support Obama. It's it's out in the open. I mean, it, it, it's like they're the ones that are going to throw the election. Trump kind of brought it up, but I mean, I don't know if they have the research to go into depth to, to see who works for the post office and who's who's picking up and delivering the actual ballots. Look into it. I mean, it's run by Democrats. Thanks for that. I mean, the whole yeah. 
Thanks for the call, Dave. I mean, I, I think uh, towards the end of the debate, they got into the ballot integrity question. I think it's less an issue of the post office delivering uh, than it is the ballot harvesting uh, illegalities. You see Project Veritas documenting in Minneapolis a report about the Biden political director in Harris County, Texas, engaged in illegal ballot harvesting. Uh, that's more of a concern, particular jurisdictions and particular states, uh, particularly as Trump was making the point at the end of the debate in states where they are mass mailing out ballot applications rather than demanding a solicitation like a normal absentee ballot process. Nick in Des Moines. Hey there. Um, first of all, Trump should have backed off a little bit and just let Biden stumble over himself. He never even gave him that opportunity tonight. Yes. And then, you know, all these times that Joe is bloviating about his plans, you should ask, what would you have done differently, Joe? He never, you know, uh, Joe's got all these plans for coronavirus and, you know, giving businesses the wherewithal to deal with coronavirus. What does that even mean? And then finally, obviously Trump didn't prepare for this because he didn't have any specifics. He doesn't go to the well on all his policies and his achievements. And um, because I'm a future health professional myself, I'd like to remind everybody who's listening that insurance is not health care. And nobody, including Republicans, ever take the time to figure out that we need to lower the cost of health care and not provide insurance to everybody. The main thing is lowering costs, not figuring out insurance. Thanks for the call, Nick. Uh, good points all. Tom in Deer Park, Illinois. You know, growing up on television, we could sit there for an hour and watch uh, William F. Buckley, The Firing Line, and what constituted uh, a debate. A de- <laughs> yeah, a debate. <laughs> Those days are long gone, Tom. Yeah, yeah, I'm backtracking. And, you know, I've uh, watched the uh, replays of the Nixon-Kennedy debate. And, you know, back in the day, uh, I read the uh, Lincoln-Douglas debate. Yeah, Tom, we're up against the clock. I get your point. Uh, We're taking all your calls at the top of the hour, 888-291-2222 on the Dan Prof Show. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show, taking your calls, getting your takes on uh, the 90-minute debate between Trump and Biden today. I've said enough. Let's get some more callers in. Dave in Lansing, you're on the Dan Prop Show. Hi. Uh, why doesn't the Trump campaign or the um, Trump administration look into this uh, fact, this elephant in the room to me, that the uh, postal workers support Democrats? It's still on the APWU website, the American Postal Workers Union website. Uh, there's, there's two flyers that support Obama. It's, it's out in the open. I mean, it, it, it's like they're the ones that are going to throw the election. Trump kind of brought it up, but, I mean, I don't know if they have the research to go into depth to, to see who works for the post office and who's, who's picking up and delivering the actual ballots. Look into it. I mean, it's run by Democrats. Thanks for that. I mean, the whole yeah. Thanks for the call, Dave. I mean, I I think uh, towards the end of the debate, they got into the ballot integrity question. I think it's less an issue of the post office delivering uh, than it is the ballot harvesting uh, illegalities. You see 
Project Veritas documenting in Minneapolis a report about the Biden political director in Harris County, Texas, engaged in illegal ballot harvesting. Uh, that's more of a concern, particular jurisdictions and particular states, uh, particularly as Trump was making the point at the end of the debate in states where they are mass mailing out ballot applications rather than demanding a solicitation like a normal absentee ballot process. Nick in Des Moines. Hey there. Um, first of all, Trump should have backed off a little bit and just let Biden stumble over himself. He never even gave him that opportunity tonight. Yes. And then, you know, all these times that Joe is bloviating about his plans, you should ask, what would you have done differently, Joe? He never, you know, uh, Joe's got all these plans for coronavirus and, you know, giving businesses the wherewithal to deal with coronavirus. What does that even mean? And then finally, obviously Trump didn't prepare for this because he didn't have any specifics. He doesn't go to the well on all his policies and his achievements. And um, because I'm a future health professional myself, I'd like to remind everybody who's listening that insurance is not health care. And nobody, including Republicans, ever take the time to figure out that we need to lower the cost of health care and not provide insurance to everybody. The main thing is lowering costs, not figuring out insurance. Thanks for the call, Nick. Uh, good points all. Tom in Deer Park, Illinois. You know, growing up on television, we could sit there for an hour and watch uh, William F. Buckley, the firing line, and what constituted uh, a debate. A de- <laughs> that, <laughs> those days are long gone, Tom. Yeah, yeah, I'm backtracking. And, you know, I've uh, watched the uh, re- replays of the Nixon-Kennedy debate, and you know, back in the day, uh, I read the uh, Lincoln-Douglas debate. Yeah, Tom, I got, we're up against the clock. I get your point. Uh, we'll take them all your calls at the top of the hour, 888-291-2222 on the Dan Prof Show. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show, taking your calls, getting your takes on uh, the 90-minute debate between Trump and Biden today. I've said enough. Let's get some more callers in. Dave in Lansing, you're on the Dan Prop Show. Hi. Uh, why doesn't the Trump campaign or the um, Trump administration look into this uh, fact, this elephant in the room to me, that the uh, postal workers support Democrats? It's still on the APWU website, the American Postal Workers Union website. Uh, there's, there's two flyers that support Obama. It's, it's out in the open. I mean, it, it, it's like they're the ones that are going to throw the election. Trump kind of brought it up, but, I mean, I don't know if they have the research to go into depth to, to see who works for the post office and who's, who's picking up and delivering the actual ballots. Look into it. I mean, it's run by Democrats. Thanks for that. I mean, the whole post yeah. office. Thanks for the call, Dave. I mean, I, I think uh, towards the end of the debate, they got into the ballot integrity question. I think it's less an issue of the post office delivering uh, than it is the ballot harvesting uh, illegalities. You see Project Veritas documenting in Minneapolis a report about the Biden political director in Harris County, Texas, engaged in illegal ballot harvesting. Uh, that's more of a concern, particular jurisdictions and particular states, uh, particularly as Trump was making the point at the end of the debate 
in states where they're mass mailing out ballot applications rather than demanding a solicitation like a normal absentee ballot process. Nick in Des Moines. Hey there. Um, first of all, Trump should have backed off a little bit and just let Biden stumble over himself. He never even gave him that opportunity tonight. Yes. And then, you know, all these times that Joe is bloviating about his plans, you should ask, what would you have done differently, Joe? He never, you know, uh, Joe's got all these plans for coronavirus and, you know, giving businesses the wherewithal to deal with coronavirus. What does that even mean? And then finally, obviously Trump didn't prepare for this because he didn't have any specifics. He doesn't go to the well on all his policies and his achievements. And um, because I'm a future health professional myself, I'd like to remind everybody who's listening that insurance is not health care. And nobody, including Republicans, ever take the time to figure out that we need to lower the cost of health care and not provide insurance to everybody. The main thing is lowering costs, not figuring out insurance. Thanks for the call, Nick. Uh, good points all. Tom in Deer Park, Illinois. You know, growing up on television, we could sit there for an hour and watch uh, William F. Buckley, The Firing Line, and what constituted uh, <laughs> a debate. A de- <laughs> that, yeah, a debate. <laughs> Those days are long gone, Tom. Yeah, yeah, I'm backtracking. And, you know, I've uh, watched the uh, re- replays of the Nixon-Kennedy debate, and you know, back in the day, uh, I read the uh, Lincoln-Douglas debate. Yeah, Tom, I got, we're up against the clock. I get your point. Uh, we'll take them all your calls at the top of the hour, 888-291-2222 on the Dan Prof Show. Stay tuned. chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all that person is dan proft and this is the dan proft show welcome to the dan proft show is post debate edition uh taking your calls all evening or for the rest of the evening the next hour 888-291-2222 uh we left off last hour with a caller from the suburban Chicago, suggesting that um, (laughs) rather the obvious, but it is nice to hearken back to a time where a debate conjured up the image of William F. Buckley and John Kenneth Galbraith arguing a matter on the merits with historical perspective and specific facts and uh, original considerations uh, and not uh, Grandpa Simpson yelling at a cloud. But uh, that's where we're at. At least that was this performance. Uh, as I said, um, uh, anybody who listens to this show knows that I am supporting President Trump for reelection. I'm going to vote for President Trump on the merits on what he's done. And he, maybe that's something that he should consider, that uh, there are people that maybe don't want to hang out with him, but appreciate more or less what he's done and the fact that he has done or he has attempted to do everything he said he would do as a candidate, some of which I disagreed with. But in terms of being committed to the things he said he would do as a candidate, it, even if you disagree with them, it's hard to argue that he did those things or he attempted to do those things. 
And that discussion of the biggest thing that distinguishes 2016 Trump from 2020 Trump was completely absent from this debate. I mean, there was mentions of it in passing, but it was generally absent. And that was his biggest advantage. So on that point, uh, Joe Biden got the better of President Trump by not having Trump talk about his record. And really, because of the interruptions and the name calling in both directions, as well as, I think, a terrible job Chris Wallace did as moderator, you didn't get much of a distillation of Joe Biden's record either, other than just the I've done more in 47 months than you've done in 47 years. But neither candidate really explained what they did in 47 months or what they did or didn't do in 47 years. My top line takeaway. I'm going to take more of your calls, but I want to get another perspective on this. Uh, He's joined us a few times before. We're pleased to have back Andy Krall, who is the D.C. Bureau Chief for Rolling Stone magazine. Andy, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Great to be back. Uh, so, um, where to begin, (laughs) uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, let, let, let me just begin with something where I'm going to provide, since I'm providing a little pushback on my candidate, I'm going to provide a little pushback on Joe Biden too, which is to say, uh, Joe Biden's value proposition is, um, uh, we need to restore integrity, dignity, uh, presidential temperament to the office. You know, when you say shut up, man, and when you call the president a clown, uh, and some other moments um, that 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 sort of cuts against his brand, too. I, I don't think he served himself well in those moments. No, I don't think he served himself well in those moments either. I, I suppose I can understand the frustration on former Vice President Biden's part to be sort of interrupted and to have this just, you know, to be devolve into kind of, as you put it, uh, Grandpa Simpson shouting at the cloud, just two of them on there shouting at the cloud, or at least shouting at each other the whole time. I, mean, I don't, I don't see how either of these candidates came out um, looking any better or having improved on their standing. So I don't know if that's like the, uh, you know, the proverbial two boxers hit each other at the same time and and, and knock each other out at the same time, and the thing is a pathetic. Yeah draw but, but it, it was it was um, it was a lot more fun disheartening watch- sight it was a lot more fun watching uh, uh rocky balboa and apollo creed do that than it was biden and trump uh in terms of the uh the simultaneous knockdown and knockout yeah i um it just was it, it, it it's just surprising to me uh because you know both man men uh, both candidates are sort of known quantities you would think that they would guard against and, and be prepared, especially uh, Joe Biden, be prepared to guard against their worst instincts. I'm sure campaign consultants, were saying, you know, he's going to do this when he does this. Don't do that. And and I mean that for both camps. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if there's a way in debate prep, if you're Joe Biden, that you can find someone to to fill in for President Trump who can act the way President Trump did tonight. But I think that there were definitely moments tonight when both the candidates were knocked off of their game and where they indulged their sort of baser impulses in a way that I don't think helps their cause. I think if it's Vice President Biden, it's what you said, you know, shut up, man, calling the president a clown. Um, I mean, I think Biden, you know, probably does himself some favors when he just sort of smiles his way through it. But those those um, sort of juvenile jabs don't help. And, of course, President Trump 
just kind of sabotaging the whole thing with talking over Wallace. We didn't do a particularly good job containing the two candidates and then talking over the vice president, former vice president. Yeah, I mean, it was just a dispiriting thing to watch the whole time. I mean, I could see people just watching this debate and, and walking away from it and being like, I don't even want to vote for either of these candidates, which. Well, it's funny. Yeah, you, you know, s- it's, it's not good for our democracy. Well, it's funny you say that. I, I, I you know, the question I always put, you know, who forget who won and lost. What, what does that even mean when you use those, those abstractions? Mm-hmm. Who advanced their flag towards the finish line? Who did themselves a favor with a constituency? They need to uh, they need to gain more support from. And I think the answer for both was neither. In, in fact, maybe they've accomplished creating more confusion and throwing more people into the undecided camp, waiting to see if this improves over the next 30 days. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of ways we can gain this out. I mean, there's one way, which is to sort of look at the national and state polls that have been pretty consistent for, what, three, four, five months now with the Biden lead. The lead changes, but it's consistent. So, you know, President Trump needed to try to use the debate as an opportunity to gain ground and try to close that gap. And I don't know if he did anything particularly notable in this debate to do that. He didn't talk about delivering on his Supreme Court justices. He didn't really talk about Middle East peace plan, a variety of things. Joe Biden, I don't I think Joe Biden, you know, might have turned off some members of the liberal base by, you know, very clearly saying, I'm not for the Green New Deal and some other kind of liberal, more Bernie Sanders style priorities. But Joe Biden, again, comes in with a little bit of a lead himself. So it feels like maybe they both moved backward or at least stood still, will be standing still coming out of this debate. Yeah. What what about Chris Wallace? I mean, his uh, performance is going to be... um is going to be reviewed uh, as a moderator in that sort of setting uh, always is not exactly Jim Lehrer in terms of uh, commanding the respect of the participants. And also, I mean, also really, I just, just I thought the quality of the questions and I thought he got as petulant as the candidates did at times. I don't even know if Jim Lehrer could have held that room. Tonight. I mean, the, the, you know, President Trump seemed to go into the debate from the beginning with a strategy to kind of disrupt it. And Joe Biden eventually, you know, was pulled into responding and then disrupting some on his own. I I agree with you. I think Wallace's questions could have been sharper, that they could have elicited more helpful answers from both of the candidates about their records, about how they would get us out of this pandemic, how they would get us out of the economic crisis resulting from the pandemic. I, I, Again, I just came away from the whole thing feeling like, I mean, I used the, 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 the dual knockout metaphor earlier, I would say now, like the, sort of the circular firing squad. It's just the whole thing was just really dispiriting, and I, I don't think anyone up on that stage can walk off feeling particularly good or good at all about how this came out. If it, if it is the case that it basically has no sort of impact positively for one candidate, that it sort of keeps the race where it is now, or maybe, you know, both take a, a half a step back, but that essentially keeps the race where it is now, if that's the case. Uh, how does that impact the next debate or the the possibility of a next debate? I mean, does this provide an opportunity for Joe Biden to say, uh, Nancy Pelosi was right. There's no point in this. This was uh, this was not something I want to participate in and have the cover to not participate in, or do they uh, have the presidential debate commission just have them both lather up in Crisco and have a wrestling match? I, I don't know which way this goes. 
that would certainly be entertaining. Yeah. Um, I, I uh, more entertaining than it was tonight. I, I think I, I mean I could see a world in which Joe Biden said, I don't see any reason to continue with this quote unquote debate schedule given what just happened uh, tonight. I don't think he will. That strikes me as something that would, even to people who don't watch debates, which there is a you know significant portion of the population that, that didn't tune in tonight, could still see that breaking through to a level where even people who don't watch debates say, "Well, I still think that that's you know pretty weak that Joe Biden didn't participate, or that he you know yeah. every other president going back however many decades has, and he's not going to." And we're gonna. I, I I would be surprised if Joe Biden took that option, but. We're gonna, we're, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to leave it there, Andy. Thanks so much, Andy yep, Kroll, yep. DC Bureau Chief Rolling Stone. Thanks for joining us. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Thank you for joining us. Phone lines are open, 888-291-2222, 888-291-2222. We've uh, got uh, another 40 minutes of your calls. Want to get your perspectives, take on the debate. Uh, as you've heard, or maybe you haven't if you just tuned in, uh, I was um, uh, pretty underwhelmed by the performances of all three gentlemen on stage. Wallace, Biden, and Trump. Uh, and uh, look, uh, with respect to President Trump, there were some moments. There was the moment where Biden was essentially saved by the bell on the law enforcement support question that President Trump, in a restrained, respectful, comfortable way, pressed him on. Right? Uh, you, you know, I've got all this law enforcement support, historic law enforcement support, uh, support from the likes of the New York police union that near, never supports candidate, New York City police union. Um, you don't have any support. You know, you're saying you're for law and order effectively is what Trump is saying, but you're not really because you're beholden to the left. This tag that he wants to put on Joe Biden because it's appropriate. And he and, you know, name one law enforcement agency law enforcement organization or law enforcement professional of any renown that's supporting you. And uh, there was silence from Joe Biden. And he said, go ahead. I'll wait. We have time. That w- that's the Trump. That's how Trump needed to be on the range of issues that the two candidates tackled rather than being so over the top in terms of interruptions and uh, sort of under the breath comments. It's just ineffective. It's ineffective. Uh, Now, that being said, uh, I want to give examples of good Trump um, so that I can contrast them from not so good Trump. So, you know what I'm saying? I'm not just taking cheap shots and uh, or wanting Trump to be somebody he can't be. He's proven he can be. He proved in the debate he can be the kind of candidate and debater that I'm talking about. It just was too far and few between those moments. Give you another example at the outset. The issue of the appointment of Amy Amy Coney Barrett and whether or not that's appropriate. Uh, President Trump, his answer on the selection of Amy Coney Barrett as the nominee and the fact that uh, it was absolutely legitimate for him to make a selection when a vacancy occurred. I will tell you very simply, we won the election. Elections have consequences. 
We have the Senate. We have the White House. And we have a phenomenal nominee, respected by all, top, top academic, uh, good in every way, good in every way. In fact, uh, some of her biggest endorsers are very liberal people from Notre Dame and other places. So I think she's going to be fantastic. We have plenty of time, uh, even if we did it after the election itself. I have a lot of time after the election, as you know. So I think that uh, she will be outstanding. She's going to be uh, as good as anybody that has served on that court. And Trump also pointing out the obvious hypocrisy of the left on the topic, what they would do if it was a President Hillary Clinton, if it was a Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, if it was uh, a vacancy, whether RBG or even uh, more on point in terms of the analogy, uh, Clarence Thomas, for example, if uh, he had retired, let's say, creating a vacancy. And by the way, the Democrats, they wouldn't even think about not doing it. If they had, the only difference is they'd try and do it faster. There's no way they would give it up. They had Merritt Garland, but the problem is they didn't have the election, so they, they were stopped. And probably that would happen in reverse also. Definitely would happen in reverse. Room temperature, key points, easily to, easy to understand. That was good Trump. And by the way, um, I tweeted out after he was, while he was giving an answer, invoke Ruth Bader Ginsburg's own words to the effect that you don't stop being president in your fourth year of the term. There's nothing in the Constitution that says you only get to be president for three years if something happens where the other side doesn't want you to exercise the authority you clearly have, the constitutional authority you clearly have. And then what did Trump do? He must have heard me or we were on the same wavelength, at least for that moment. Justice Ginsburg said very powerfully, very strongly, at some point, 10 years ago or so, she said a president and the Senate is elected for a period of time. But a president's elected for four years. We're not elected for three years. I'm not elected for three years. Exactly. Simple, straightforward, substantive. Point Trump. And what does Joe Biden uh, offer in response? Histrionics about what a future Supreme Court and for future Supreme Court justice may or may not decide on Roe v. Wade or Obamacare. The point is that the president also is opposed to Roe v. Wade. That's on the ballot as well in the court, in the court. And so that's also at stake right now. And so the election is all You don't know it's begun. on the ballot. I, Why is it on the ballot? Because, because Why is you it on the ballot? It's not on the ballot. It's on the ballot in the I court. I don't think so. In the court. Well, There's nothing happening there. Well, also, well, the, he's right about that. There's no uh, seminal uh, Roe v. Wade. Uh, so there's no seminal case that would uh, invoke Roe v. Wade schedule for next term. But here, here's the larger point. I'm sorry, Joe, you don't understand the concept of divided government. I have positions on issues. You have positions on issues. Then there is the law. And then there is this third branch of government called the judiciary and the highest court in that branch of government that interprets the law. And there are cases that come before that court where they make decisions about the interpretation of the law vis-a-vis the Constitution or federal statute vis-a-vis the Constitution. And so, I'm sorry, what's the problem here? Just as the court decided in Brown v. Board of Education to overturn Plessy v. Ferguson, even though that was precedent, so a future court may decide something different on something that even Ruth Bader Ginsburg said was a a poorly argued judicial decision, that being Roe v. Wade. But, But respect the branches of government, Joe. Why won't you do that? 
And then why won't you act, ask, uh, answer the packing the court question, which is emanating from your own party? Right. That dodge, I think, makes Biden look weak and suspicious. And so that whole area of a, the discussion at the outset of the Supreme Court, good start. Fortunately, I don't think it was sustained. Alex in Chicago, you're on Dan Prof show. Yeah, um, my I liked Trump's approach, which was to knock Joe off balance, and it seemed to work. I cannot recall one good thing Joe they can kind of capture and say he, you know, did something good in that debate. I, I can't recall anything in that debate, and I think it's because of Trump's approach which was to kind of knock him off balance. You could see him stumbled the whole time as Trump kind of, maybe he was overbearing, but I mean, he came out looking what overbearing, but Biden came out looking lost and weak. And I think the best point was, because it was early, was when he um, asked Biden whether or not he would pack the court and he wouldn't answer. Yeah. And that was early. And that's a big question, I think, because um, people want to know if uh, the Democrats are going to just. Yeah, it's good to get engaged in. Tan- yeah, thanks for the call. It's good to engage in temper tantrum politics. And the answer by not answering was they are. You're right. I, I just wish he would have replicated that model for answering questions for the uh, subsequent 85 minutes. Take more of your calls, 888-291-2222, right after this. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Taking your calls to the top of the hour, 888-291-2222, Before the break, uh, talking about uh, the Supreme Court, the exchange on the Supreme Court vacancy and the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett that was decidedly uh, to Trump's advantage. And stylistically, I argued that is what we needed to see from Trump uh, for the duration. And we didn't. And I'm, I'm seeing a lot of uh, responses from Trump supporters on social media that essentially say, uh, as we were talking about uh, at the top of the hour with Andy Crawl from Rolling Stone, probably because this that debate was such a uh, demolition derby that nobody's votes were changed as a result of this debate. Trump supporters saying that. Well, um, that may be true. But uh, what does that say about Trump's performance, if that's the case? Versus expectations versus needs for the campaign and for to move his candidacy along to victory. If your reaction is. Nobody will change the votes as a result of the debate, compare that to what your expectation was going in, that it was going to be Tyson Spinks and Trump was going to. You know, move the election decidedly to his advantage when the contrast between Trump and Biden was laid bare for the nation to see. You're conceding the point that didn't happen. And so by definition, that is at minimum a missed opportunity for Trump, isn't it? 
2222. Greg in Schaumburg, Illinois. The answer to your question, Dan, is was it a missed opportunity? The answer is unquestionably yes, because you go into debates with the idea of picking up points, not losing points. What I predict probably has happened tonight that, yes, there are some people that probably only going to watch one debate if, in fact, there are any more. And they probably have turned their mind off to Trump, even if they were a little bit open. And it's solely based on stupidity of the niceness factor. And that's the reason why over and above whatever you, as you always expertly do, go through and dissect issue by issue as to who won, who didn't. I think the normal American, especially the ones that are targets that I've just referenced, don't really care about granularity like that. They just score on an emotional point, whether they like them or not, like them, trust them or can't trust them, mm -hmm. and want to put their lives in his hands and go forward. And if I could just conclude with one last point, Dan, this is a horrible way to run a country. In other words, if the future of the United States in terms of capitalism and socialism was decided tonight, this is ridiculous that we are in an ex slam down format. What it should have been is a detailed, like a grid of a women's league of women's voters with each of them being interviewed, a grid put out, and then perhaps interviews with each of them explaining their points of view and then let them have at it at the stage. But at least there would have been a concrete thing that people could have referred to. Well, I'll tell you what, um, you know, it's just, I don't know, League of Women Voters, I don't know that I'd endorse that format just because that organization is uh, even worse than Chris Wallace. But um, but I, I understand what you're saying. Uh, and and the niceness factor that you point up, you know, I, I recoil at this sometime, too, because you want people to recognize that politicians aren't there to be your friend. They're there to do a particular job and advance your interests. And that's right. how they should be measured. But the reality is that's how a lot of people approach it, just as you said. And there was an Associated Press story out today about, you know, Republicans. It's anecdotal. But so is Brett Stevens column in The New York Times about this 50 something year old gay woman in Manhattan who's voting for Trump. That's anecdotal, too. Um, there's a lot of anecdotes out there. This, this is complicated with these two candidates in these tumultuous times. And the AP story was yeah. a, this. A, the AP story was about Republicans who are uncomfortable with Trump. Some suburban women, in particular, who are otherwise Republican, including pro-life, and I mean real Republican, who are saying, "I'm not going to vote for him just because I I can't stomach somebody that is so mean to other people." And you know what? The import of that, Dan, is he hurt every single Republican in the country by taking that position, because that's the basis on which people decide things. You mean, I, you I mean the, 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 tem the temperament he exhibited tonight, you mean? Right. In other words, if the, again, let's say the numbers were static in a congressional election, you know, in a Chicago suburb. And let's say it's close and it's the five to eight percent and you're down to try to get them. Um, that we probably didn't pick them up tonight. I think we ultimately will pick them up, but we blew it by not having the ability to communicate better. And, and one last point, Dan, Quickly. with somebody who's, yeah, who's somebody coaching President Trump needs to get to him and realize that, you know, he needs to just trust God. He did everything that he could possibly do in a first term. Just be quiet and let us recognize what God has done with the people, the Congress and him. Thanks for the call. Greg, we'll take more of your calls. 888-291-2222. 888-291-2222 on the Dan Prof Show. We'll be right back. Fixers and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is the
the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Thank you for joining us on this post-debate one edition. And uh, oh, Nelly, to borrow from the late great Keith Jackson, that was a rousing affair, to say the least. Maybe, though, maybe my perspective is, um, I don't know, maybe I just, uh, my taste is not aligned with the taste of uh, the great uh, majority of uh, Trump Trump voters, Trump supporters. I I, I don't think so, though. I'm seeing a lot of reaction of feeling like there were missed opportunities, feeling like Trump was not as prepared as he should be, feeling like he wasn't as specific as he could have been. He wasn't even as sharp in in reposting to Biden's parries as he could have been. For example, when Biden made the ridiculous statement, I mean, ridiculous statement that Antifa is not an organization, it's an idea. Really? Uh, well, don't tell that to journalist Andy No, who was almost beaten to death in Portland by Antifa, Joe Biden. Don't tell that to Portland residents who've seen Ted Wheeler, the mayor there, turn their city over to Antifa, even to the point of directing traffic. Uh, these uh, people walking around in black garb and engage in all sorts of thuggery around the nation. Uh, that is not a idea. Those are actual human beings been, being underwritten by somebody. Project Veritas has undercover video of an Antifa meeting in Portland, actually. What are you talking about, Joe? This is how out of touch you are, Joe. This is why when you say you're for law and order, you're not being square with the American people, Joe. That could have been a moment instead of relying on talk radio jocks like me and uh, folks like you listening to then, you know, rush out into social media and your your circles of influence to provide the explanation and the response that Trump could have given in the moment and really uh, dealt a, a hard right to, to Joe Biden. That's the example of what I'm talking about and what I think other people are talking about. Uh, let's hear more of what you're thinking and talking about. Uh, your call is 888-291-2222. Ryan, you're on the Dan Prop Show. Hey, Dan. Honored to speak with you. Uh, you. Two two quick thoughts. Uh, I think Chris Wallace played directly into Biden's hand. I think he portrayed Trump as a petulant child, whereas Biden got a huge pass, like he was just trying to kind of get his time in. And number two, I think two big missed opportunities for Trump. Number one was the Charlottesville incident and yeah. his comments surrounding that. Number two was critical race theory. I think otherwise Trump had a number of good moments, but it was downplayed by his misses and the kind of back and forth with Chris Wallace uh, on those on those things. Yeah, I think those yeah. uh, those are good points, Ryan. And look, um, with with respect. Thanks for the call. With respect to Wallace. Hey, hey, hey Chris, don't scold me. I, I hear you. And I'm, I'm happy to let Joe Biden speak if he lets me speak. But but also we're here to debate. I mean, he sort of said it at the outset. I, I mean, it's it's like I'm debating Chris Wallace, not Joe Biden or worse to that effect. Remember that moment? That was all he needed to say. Didn't need to belabor the point. And when Chris Wallace became petulant and was scolding Trump, he could have backed him down rather than continue to interrupt Joe Biden. 
just relax, Chris. Okay. We're the presidential candidates here. We can handle this. I won't interrupt him. He won't interrupt me. You play referee. Uh, but, uh, if I have a point to make before you're done with your long-winded anodyne questions, then I'm going to make it. Now go ahead. Simple. Just a sentence or two, end it all, end that aspect of the circus, and then get back to the merits. Uh, Verlon on the south side of Chicago. Well, I think, I think Donald Trump looks strong in charge. Joe Biden looked weak off his game and flustered. That's why he started name calling and all of the stuff that he was talking about, he was running two and three subjects all together in some kind of mishmash sentence. And and to allude back to the question that you were talking about as far as race when it when it came to uh sensitivity training and stuff like that. Yeah. Well the problem was is Trump didn't want to use the word white. So he said certain kinds of people, because if he used the word white, they were going to tear him apart either tomorrow or then, right then, because he would have came off sounding like a white supremacist by saying white people are being taught bad things about this country and, and being taught to talk down to this country or think bad about this country. So he got trapped into a position where he couldn't use the word white. But I mm. think he got a number Huh? I I don't I don't know no, I don't think he had to say it that way I think he could have said look the, the the this is not sensitivity training this is teaching some people that they're oppressors and other people that they're victims based on their race this is about fomenting racial discord that's what this is and I know who they are I know who Ibram Kendi is I know who Robin D'Angelo is and I know what they're teaching. And what uh, is being advanced by that Marxist organization called Black Lives Matter. I understand what's happening there. And it's not how you're describing it, Chris. And my point is I want people to look past race and get along uh, through shared dignity that we all uh, have and are entitled to as human beings. They want to play the race is the path to power game. Your race is the path to power game. And I'm not playing that game. And that's why I issued the executive order. So so be it. Period. The end. Could have done it that way. Yeah, that's true. But but I think uh, he got a lot of points across. Lowest unemployment in history. Uh, the even though the uh, the pandemic knocked us down, he's building jobs back at a fast rate. Ten point two million, he said, and it was proven. Chris Wallace even had to back that up. And Joe Biden lost a lot of traction by not getting behind the Green Deal. And there's about two or three other things he said that he wasn't for. That that the left is for. So. And that uh, Antifa is just an idea of what Matla said uh, some months ago. So I think yeah. that Joe Biden lost a lot as well. All right. Thanks for the call, Verlon. Jerome on the southwest side. We just have a few seconds, Jerome. Uh, hi, Dan. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, Chris Wallace, a couple of quick points. Um, he brought up questions in a couple of areas that weren't even on his vaunted list. One was the $750 uh, uh, tax payments business, obviously directed to Trump, and then the climate change. That wasn't on the list. And, of course, that was first directed to Trump as well. So, yeah, right. Great job, Chris. Thanks for the call, Jerome. Uh, back to wrap it up, 888-291-2222. Try to get a couple more calls in before we go on the Dan Prop Show.
Welcome back to the show as we wrap up on this installment of the Dan Prof Show. Just one, one other uh, thing I, I thought Trump really missed, and it's sort of the big things he missed. There's these moments on particular issues, and there's the big things. Not enough emphasis on his record, what he said he would do as a candidate, and what he did or attempted to do as president. Really important, number one. Number two, sort of the um, attitudinal nature, the um, – sort of bigger choice that transcends all of the issues. Look, you had somebody you sent to Washington to drain the swamp, to take it to the ruling elites of both parties who have undermined the interests of middle income Americans for a couple of generations at least. And I and and then tying that in, and I said I would do that. And here's all the things I've done in furtherance of taking it to the ruling class, of draining the swamp, as I say. And uh, the choice in this election is that swamp is a little bit deeper than I thought, you know, didn't fully appreciate it as an outsider coming in. And I'm still in the same position. So the choice is, do we continue to build on the work that we've done to drain the swamp and to return your government to you? Or do you say, I don't like Trump's tweets. And so I'm going to install another member from the men and women of always cadre that crew back in the White House. That's a big choice you have on November 3rd. I like framing things for people, and I just don't think Trump did a very good job of framing the big questions. Uh, Jim in Naperville, Illinois. Dan, you know what? I'll tell you what. He had to do what he had to do. This is the first of three uh, debates, all right? And if he did anything less than what he did tonight, Everyone be jumping out of their chairs saying, why didn't you correct Biden on this issue or that, you know, and, and at least jump in. Get You know, he's been abused by the media for how many years now? Three and a half years, you know. So he had to get up in front of it and just jump up on there and, and Chris Wallace and knock Chris Wallace on his heels and knock Biden on his heels. You know, and yeah. Biden is tough because he's grabbing onto his podium when he wasn't trying to stab someone with his pen. You know. Uh, all right, thanks for the call, Jim. I look, I know there'll always be constructive criticism and constructive criticism after any performance, but when you start to look at the balance sheet of good moments versus not so good moments, uh, what's the net net here? Did we advance the cause? And you can't say that we advance the cause. I don't think you can, in my view. Then, I mean, I think that requires some retrenching and reconsideration in advance of approach and in advance of the next debate. Uh, I guess we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to this installment of the Dan Prof Show in Chicago. I'll be back on the air at 5 a.m. Central Time with my co-host Amy Jacobson, and we'll be talking debate all morning. And we'll pick it up with the fallout on tomorrow night's Dan Prof Show. Thanks again for joining us. Please do so again tomorrow, Wednesday evening.